Hi, I'm Declan Quigley, and you're listening to Defying the Odds, a new podcast series brought to you by We Love Cycling Ireland. In each episode, I'll be speaking to a cycling professional or enthusiast who, despite facing many challenges along the way, has achieved something truly exceptional. Joining me today is Cormac Ryan, a man who faced not one, but two significant challenges and has come out fighting and indeed pedalling. Cormac is currently halfway through a 6,000-kilometre bike ride from Achill Island to Athens, Greece, in aid of Bodywise and Pieta House. Having enjoyed success in hurling as a teenager, Cormac was dealt a hammer blow with the diagnosis of a major heart condition and latterly has had to deal with other challenges, including the debilitating psychological impact of an eating disorder. Less than two months ago, Cormac was in Lois Bridges Treatment Centre in Dublin, and from the moment he was discharged, he was full steam ahead on a daunting bike ride that had has been almost two years in the making. Cormac, uh, you're very welcome. Tell us, first of all, uh, where are you and how are you? Well, Declan, how are things? Um, I'm currently in Vienna, Austria. And I'm a bit tired, but I'm okay. I'm in good form. I'm in good spirits. It's very hard to complain when you're uh, on the type of uh, a journey that I'm on at the moment. So I'm not going to complain and say that I'm too tired because it's, uh, it's an experience of a lifetime that we're getting at the moment. So it'd be... Um, it'd be remiss of me to start giving out about it in any way. Well, oh, I'd be giving out. Give us the nuts and bolts of it. Uh, 6,000 kilometres, a little bit under two months. I my, my maths isn't great, but I think that's something in the order of 100 kilometres a day, including the rest days. Huh? Yeah, so we have, our average is that we have 55 days to do it, 45 days of cycling. So it comes in at about 130. Oof. Um. Yeah, 6,000 kilometres total, over 45,000 metres elevation climb, um, 11 kg gravel bikes rather than a 7 or 8 kg road bike, 15 to 16 kilograms of gear to carry, self-supported. Um, that's probably the hard part. Tell us, it's, it's, it's not just yourself. You have a couple of friends going with you as well. Yeah, so my first cousin, Stephen Ryan, um, He's a lab technician from Mayo and myself and Stephen would have cycled around Ireland together for charity in 2013 and 2015 to kind of 1200k spins around the coastline of the country. And then one of my best friends um, and early childhood friends, a guy called Niall O'Donnell from just up the road from me in Dublin, we would have played a lot of hurling football together growing up. He also cycled around the country with me in 2013. Um, he's a primary school teacher he's also a bike mechanic which is a wonderful asset to have on such a journey very useful and, oh can talk about an invaluable asset to have the man is just amazing with bikes um, and that's where his true passion lies so to have a bike mechanic as part of your team is, is a gift on something like this so they're the two lads who are with me you mentioned team. I mean, you've been a team player all your life. You must have had moments of uh, of great loneliness. Take us back to the moment when you're 18. Uh, you're looking to and towards a, a minor All-Ireland uh, final, perhaps, in uh, Croke Park was coming up. You played for Dublin at the time and um, everything was rosy and everything was about hurling in those days. Yeah, like I suppose I grew up in a GA mad family and... Um, despite the fact that my father's a mailman and would be football obsessed, hurling was very much kind of the love and the passion growing up. And to be honest, it was all I knew. I wasn't the most extroverted child. So hurling was all I had, all I knew, and I was obsessive. And yeah, I was lucky enough to play in golf for the Dublin Miners in 2011. And we got to an All-Ireland final, ultimately got well bet by Galway on the day. But like 
fairy tale stuff playing in front of Crow Park as it was filling up all on Ireland final day and 40 or 50,000 people being in by the time the minor game ends. It was it was kind of dream come true stuff at that age. And at that time, just after the All-Ireland final, all I had my sights set on was playing under 21 for Dublin, playing senior for Dublin and just progressing on. Like never, never could I have envisaged kind of what came to be over the next kind of six months and then now 10 years later. I mean, you'd been getting dizzy spells. You'd been struggling a little bit with um, what you thought was the effects of asthma. Yeah, so I would have been asthmatic all my life and quite a bad one. Like I, I'd take a steroid every morning and if I don't get my steroid inhaler, I would struggle and I'd be quite wheezy throughout today. So it was after the All-Ireland final, that kind of September 2011 to February 2012 period, I was... Um, I had started in DCU and I was playing freshers hurling and I was training with the senior team with the club and I just kept getting dizzy spells and chest pain and my breathing would go haywire and I'd probably get a bit panicked then because I couldn't breathe properly and one or two times then I got kind of I kind of fainted on the pitch and I was brought to Tala Hospital once um, and they sent me home told me I was fine and it just kept happening and kept happening same thing every time I exerted myself my chest would tighten up I get really severe burning pain I'd panic I'd get dizzy and I just wouldn't feel right it was very hard to describe and I suppose mom and dad after it happened the third or fourth time weren't happy with some of kind of the explanations that were being given for oh he's not warming up properly it's a uh, it's the cold air affecting his breathing. So they pushed to kind of get a help, get it taken a closer look at. So ultimately there was a respiratory specialist involved in our club from Bowmouth and he agreed to do a review of all my asthma medications and do some pulmonary function tests. Just because dad was so persistent, he put a halter monitor on me to monitor my heart for 24 hours and I brought it back on it was Friday the 17th, February 2012. I brought it back that morning to Bowmount. I was in town that afternoon after college finished and I got a phone call probably at about two or three o'clock saying, hi Cormac and so-and-so cardiologist Reg, um, can you come straight up to Bowmount? I didn't really think much of it. I wasn't, I, I don't think it really registered with me. I was on the bus home and they rang again saying, where are you? You need to get up here as soon as possible. Still didn't register with me. I actually went home put a pizza in the oven, had the pizza and then wandered up to A&E in Beaumont. And it was only when I walked into A&E, I gave my name. They brought me straight through to triage, put me in a wheelchair, wouldn't let me walk up to the ward um, that I kind of said, all right, there's something, not, there's something going wrong here. And um, they all seemed very anxious or panicked. I was sitting on a bed in coronary care and I don't know whether it was a reg or a cardiologist or someone came in and shook my dad's hand and said, you must be Cormac. And that's when I was like, oh right, we have a bit of bother here. They just assumed that the patient sitting in front of them was going to be my father. They obviously hadn't looked at the date of birth. So um, that's kind of when reality started to set in. Okay, there's something wrong here. And no family history. And so nobody really was twigging the fact that there was something other than asthma here. And and it turned out to be uh, very significant. And you've um, got a little, <laughs> un, well, I suppose welcome, but uh, unexpected visitor into your chest since then. Yeah, yeah, that's one way, that's one way to put it. Um, unwelcome at the time, but very much welcome now, I suppose. Um, yeah, I basically spent two weeks in coronary care. They did every test under the sun. Um, and basically my heart rate was slowing to about 25 beats per minute at night. It was skipping beats and it was stopping for about five seconds at a time. 
and I wouldn't even be aware of it. So ultimately they put a pacemaker in, um, which basically monitors my heart rhythm. And if my heart skips a beat, um, it sends out an electrical impulse to replace that beat that it's missed. Or if my heart rate drops too low, it'll start pacing my heart to ensure it stays above a certain rate. And they did every test under the sun and couldn't find a reason for it. Um, my whole family has been screened thoroughly, can't find any genetic reason for it. They still to this day aren't really sure why it happened. Yeah, um, it seems to be something increasingly that uh, there's a little bit more awareness, if not necessarily the knowledge of why, but uh, an awareness of, of of just these these crazy electrical impulses and exactly how um, how they can affect our lives. And and uh, from that moment, you're an ex hurler, I suppose. That must have been devastating. Yeah, because I remember asking the question. It was funny when they said pacemaker to me after about three or four days it was as if the pacemaker wasn't the issue and the only issue was hurling. My first question was, can I hurl again? And then the cardiologist looked at me and he said, look, people with pacemakers don't play contact sports. And that's when all hell broke loose. I had an absolute meltdown. I just couldn't fathom a life without playing Gaelic football or hurling again. And that's when the guy who originally referred me to respiratory consultant got involved and he spoke to my cardiologist and he was like, here, look, I know this isn't, standard practice but you take hurling football away from this kid and you're taking his life away so they reluctantly agreed to put the pacemaker quite deep inside my chest wall so most of the time it just goes under the skin but for me they put it under my pec muscle um, and told me to go away and try to build up the muscle around the area to give it some more protection and luckily um, I managed to get back playing hurling um, and have no, had no real hiccups with it since I don't really know how we're 10 years later and I've been playing full contact sports since. So I, through some stroke of luck, have managed to uh, stay playing ball um, when I probably wasn't meant to. But I get the impression that uh, from what I've read about you and we're, we're just meeting for the first time, it's it's great to talk to you. But I get the impression that uh, from the moment that you got the pacemaker, you weren't defined by sport in the way that you had been before. You, your relationship with hurling had changed. Yeah, my a hundred percent. I suppose what I suppose what initially started to change was that over that course of a year, when I was recuperating and recovering, the pacemaker just had a massive impact on me mentally, and like my mood dipped massively. But in terms of performance, I wasn't the same player when I got back. Whatever it did to my confidence and my self esteem and my self worth, I just wasn't the same animal when I went back playing, especially at county level. I suppose to play in goal at that level, you have to have kind of this deep rooted sense of self-confidence and that seemed to desert me. And no matter what I did, even when I got back playing under 21 hurling with Dublin in 2013 and 14, I wasn't, I wasn't the same player that I was. And I suppose it probably opens your eyes a bit too. You kind of meet families of people who've lost their sons or daughters to something similar that I had. And you, you start to realize, yes, this, sport once was my everything but now I'm meeting people whose sons and daughters weren't so lucky to to make it through a similar kind of condition that I had and it probably opens your eyes a bit and you kind of start looking at things differently and thinking right maybe achieving stuff inside four white lines isn't to be all and end all and maybe there's a bit more to all of this and maybe there's a different way that I can get fulfillment in life and a different way that I can kind of try and I suppose make myself feel good about myself and give something back 
uh, yeah, unusually for for such a young man, you um, you didn't sort of go deep into yourself or become morose to the same extent. Now, I understand there were sort of knock on psychological issues, and we can talk about that in in a, in a few moments. But um, you decided to throw yourself enthusiastically into uh, giving something back to the community, giving something back to the world. Yeah, so I suppose with the nature of the cardiac condition, and I, I kind of said, right, I can. Uh, to be honest, I was in I was in a bad way for eight or nine months, and it was quite a selfish reason that I decided to give something back because I felt so terrible, and I felt so kind of broken that I was like, I need to do something here, and the only way I could think of was like, right, well, if I try help other people, it might make me feel a bit better about myself and make me feel a bit better about the situation. So. I set up a charity called Cycle for Life, which and basically what we did was I was 19 and we cycled 1,200 kilometers around the coastline of Ireland trying to raise money for cardiac charities. And we raised about 35 grand and I was only 19 when I did it and I had never really cycled a bike in any way seriously before. And it was a very kind of cathartic experience, a very kind of fulfilling experience that definitely helped heal everything a bit. But at the same time, I was 19 and it was only really paper and over cracks, but that was kind of what the realm that I threw myself into to try and kind of get my life back on track, I suppose, and try and re kind of build that confidence that had deserted me. Why cycling? Why, why did you pick that particular sport? Some people go for a run, some people, you know, do daisy chains or whatever. I mean, there are, there are various different ways that you can contribute to society. I don't really know, to be honest, Declan. Like, there is no major cycling. Um, there's no, no cycling history in my family. Like my eldest brother, Sean, would be, again, would have been hurling and football obsessed growing up and would have played underage with Dublin and has turned into quite a good cyclist. Now he's never competed, but he, he'd be a very strong novice, I suppose. And if he had have ever thrown himself into it from a young age, he might have been able to do something. Um, but he probably came to it too late. And around that time, he was probably just getting into the cycling and he was watching the tour and I probably saw a bit of that and thought, oh, well, it'd be cool to cycle my bike and do some sort of challenge with the bike and cycle around. I don't. I just came up with this idea of cycling around Ireland and I said it to mom and dad and they laughed at me. They thought I was crazy. At this stage, I was in no physical condition to do it. I was mentally completely fragile and I said, oh yeah, I'm going to cycle around Ireland and raise money for charity. And they, thought, they didn't laugh at me, but they thought it was mad. So I don't really know. Maybe it came from just seeing my brother's interest in cycling and I just thought it would be a cool idea to kind of propel yourself around the country with your own leg power or something like that. I, I don't really know, but whatever drew me to it, it's led me down a very interesting and cool path that I probably, that I could never have envisaged when I was playing in an All-Ireland final 10 years ago. You've suffered from an eating disorder for the last couple of years, for many years, I suspect. Tell us a little bit about that. It probably all stems from the pacemaker, to be honest, Declan. I am when I got the pacemaker, I wasn't really allowed exercise for a good few months. My mood dipped quite low. I would have never had any awareness of food or what I looked like. And inevitably, just when I wasn't as active and I was still eating the same amount, I, I put on a bit of weight. And I suppose when I went back playing then a year later in 2013, I'm very self-aware and I always have been. I suppose I, I, I kind of, one or two people just kind of made comments saying that, oh, that just the casual comments that you'd hear on a GA pitch, oh, you've filled out a bit or carrying a bit of timber now and I suppose they really really stuck with me and it was very gradual the whole eating disorder thing like it started out with me just being aware that if I wanted to get back with playing with Dublin I needed to shift a bit of weight so it was kind of stuff that you hear plenty of people doing cutting carbs doing extra gym sessions 
uh, running more and eating less. And it started very mildly. And for the first couple of years, the behaviors were extremely mild. It definitely wouldn't have been described as an eating disorder. And right up until the point of 2015, 2016, you could, I very much was able to kind of fall under the bracket of someone who just really looks after themselves very well. But when you start down that path and you start to become more conscious of what you look like and a bit more obsessive, and then you start cutting out more carbohydrates and then you start cutting out sugar and then you become too paranoid to eat a scone and then you become, no, I'm going to only have half a bar of chocolate. And it just, it was very slow and it was over a period of nine years, but ultimately it led me to a place where in particular in the last two years, things started to really worsen. Um, I started cutting out breakfast. Then before I knew it, I was cutting out lunch and then I was only having one meal a day. Then I'd start getting quite panicked after I'd eat certain food types. Ultimately led me to a place where in March and April, I was having panic attacks after meals. I wasn't eating for days on end. I started having quite serious thoughts about making myself get sick. I kind of wandered into the bathroom once or twice and was about to try and make myself get sick, I suppose, to put it uh, quite mildly. Um, and that's probably when I got a fright and then I wasn't able to go to work and I'm a physiotherapist. And if your head's not in the game as a physio and I was working with people who had had strokes and brain injuries and Parkinson's disease, and I just wasn't there mentally. And I started having to call in sick to work. And at that stage, that's when I had no real choice. I was backed so much into a corner that I had to try and get help. I had, I had stopped functioning. And friends and family, what were they seeing? What, were the, what was their um, understanding? Not, the time? They didn't have a clue until the time when I, in March and April, where I had, couldn't go into work and I had no choice but to tell them. I had pretty much hidden it for seven, eight years. Um, and it's no one's fault that they didn't notice because the thing about eating disorders is they make you become very secretive, very deceitful. Um, it's a devious. very, yeah. yeah, devious, cunning. Um, it's a very secretive illness and you find ways to get around it. Like I tell mom, oh yeah, I'm, I, I always have breakfast and work with the lads and then obviously I'd be in work. So oh, yeah, I'd have lunch. Oh, are you going to have dinner tonight? Oh no, sure, food arrived in at the end of work. Domino sent in a load of pizza to us during COVID because it was COVID and I've eaten plenty and just, I might just have a yogurt and a piece of fruit in the evening then just so she'd see me eat something. And I'd be like, right now she's thinking, thinks I've eaten plenty. And all they'd ever have to do is see you eating once in the day and you could fib your way around the rest. And it sounds horrific. And it's one thing I do feel quite guilty about is the amount of white lies I told and how deceitful I was. But such as the intensity of the fear of gaining weight and the intensity of the fear um, of certain food types that you'd do anything to avoid them. Um, and there's an assumption that um, by some, antediluvian assumption indeed, but that uh, it's only women that suffer from eating disorders. That's, that's, that's surely changing now. Slowly, I'd say. Um, one of the reasons why I took so long to seek help and the only re- and one of the reasons why I was literally backed into a corner before I sought out any help was because I thought I was going insane. I'd never heard of a man who had had an eating disorder. I didn't know any men who had eating disorders. Any time, even in the last year or two, where I thought I might have had an eating disorder, when I looked stuff up or tried to listen to podcasts or seek out um, 
resources or information. It was all female oriented. So I thought I was going insane. And I thought if I said all this stuff out loud, like I'm afraid to eat sliced bread, I have a panic attack after I eat a certain meal. I don't, my brain is telling me I don't deserve to eat today. I'll get fat if I eat this. All these thoughts were going around in my head. So I thought if I verbalized them, I was like, people will think I am losing my mind. Um, and that was because there was nothing out there about men having eating disorders. There was no, um, there was no kind of nothing to bounce it off. There was no, uh, there was no mention of it anywhere. So I, I, I was completely isolated and that's why until I was left with no choice, I didn't, I didn't look for help because I just thought there was something wrong with me. It did went all the way back to the pacemaker, did it? To the, yeah, to that change very in much your so. life. Yeah, the pacemaker and the fact that I put on weight and just that comment, simple comments were made by people who probably didn't even realize they made them and they were throwaway comments. Yet they were only words, but they 10 years later resulted in me having a panic attack in the corner of my room, having to ring my parents, telling them something was badly wrong and that I hadn't been to work in days and that I wasn't eating. So it's, um, it just shows what small things can eventually turn into major issues yeah well um, best of luck I'm sure it's a journey it's a process always um, self-examination and uh, learning to love yourself or, or finding a way to do it isn't that the yeah. the key uh, all the while uh, you've had a plan hatched indeed for a couple of years at this stage um, another bike ride you had to go to plan B tell us about that yeah so I've always been obsessed with human endurance and kind of novel type things that humans can do um, whether it's by bike or by foot or climbing mountains, there's just something about that psyche about trying to do something that very few other people have done or trying to really push yourself to the limits to see what you're physically capable of that fascinates me. And I've always had this weird notion that I'd love to cycle across the US. And it was in my head for years after I did two cycles around Ireland, it was there. And I suppose I was in college and I was doing a master's and I was still kind of hurting at a high level. So I kept putting off and putting off. And then just about six months before COVID came into our, into our consciousness, I said, right, I'm going to go and try to do this in April, 2020. And I committed to cycling across America and I told people I was doing it. And then COVID hits and America shut down and you can't get into the US and we delay it till September 2020 and we still can't get into the US and me and the two lads are kind of like right we can't put life on hold forever so we kind of pivoted and went to plan B and we said right plan B can be a sit, an equidistant challenge but we'll go across Europe and um, so somewhere in the region of five to 6,000 kilometers across Europe. And we said, right, do we go in a circle? Do we do a tour and a Vuelta and a Giro all together? Or do we go try, go transcontinental? We had all these crazy ideas. It was actually my little brother came up with it. Um, He was harping on about Athens being um, the birthplace of the Olympics and how there's a cool kind of, a cool kind of team with that. And he was like, why don't you just go from Ackle to Athens? one side of Europe to do it. And we kind of just said, okay, that works. And we checked out the distance. And if you went as the crow flies, it was kind of more three and a half, four thousand. And we said, right, well, this needs to be the same distance as America. So we took this roundabout route and we're halfway through it now. And uh, 
yeah, we're going transcontinental from across Europe back to Athens. And, and how's it going? I mean, you say sort of on average, given that you're you're sort of dropping the the occasional rest day, without which you wouldn't make it across. I hasten to add, uh, around about 130k a day. You started off with a couple of 160, 170 kilometer bike rides. Yeah, so we started in Ackle on September 1st and we went Ackle to Dublin in two days. So we did a 160 and a 170. Um, and then we flew to Nantes on the west coast of France, went down the west coast of France along the southern Spanish-French border down by Bordeaux and Toulouse and over to Montpellier. And then we turned north up towards Lyon and Grenoble and headed for the Alps and went up over the French Alps Um and then did a kind of an arc of northern Italy into Turin and Milan and Lake Como and Lake Garda and Verona and Venice. And then we detoured into Slovenia up through Lake Bled and then crossed the Austrian Alps um, and headed up into the Austrian hills then and landed us in Vienna now, 3,000 kilometers later. Um, just crossed, saying, yeah. Yeah. And we've crossed the Alps twice and we have fully loaded gravel bikes with the fully loaded altogether. We're probably coming in at about 27, 28 kilos um, with our tents, our sleeping bags, our sleeping mats, our food, our tools, our spare tubes, our spare tires, our clothes, our cycling gear, our water bladders, our runners, our spare jocks and socks, our sports, our cooking utensils, everything you can think of, we have to carry. Presumably you started peachy keen, full of enthusiasm. You had decent fitness built up on some level. Um, you know, when did it really start to hurt? Yeah, like uh, we had trained, in fairness, we did train well. Now, you can only prepare yourself so much for the self-supported aspect because when your bike is, full, when you're training on a 10 kilo gravel bike compared to when you're doing the real thing on a 27 or a 28 kilo gravel bike, it's a lot different. It's fine on the flat, but the second there's a headwind or the second you go uphill or the second you stop and have to get started again, you feel every kilo of weight. So we were fairly, do you know what? The first week was tough enough. The legs were adjusting. And then the body starts to adjust quite well. Week two and three, we actually felt okay. And it was literally only the past two or three days where we've started to really feel the fatigue. So we're on day 30 now. Um, and day 28, 29 and 30, as we crossed back over the Austrian Alps with a lot of climbing, um, was when we really started to feel the burn a bit. Like we had a day there the other day where we climbed 1200 meters in 15 K or something like that, something crazy. And there was another day where we had 160 K crossing the Alps and 1800 meters of climbing and like 18% gradients, like just stupid stuff. Like, wow. um, so that's when the fatigue is really just the past two or three days started to set in like, and look, Day 27, 28, 29, you're starting to get a bit tired, to be expected. How do you get up 18% uh, with 25-kilogram bike? Tell us about your setup, actually. What's the um, what's the rig? So we kind of went for more of a bike packing setup than a bike touring setup. Um, so it's much more streamlined. So we're on Genesis Crawdifer gravel bikes. There are steel bikes with... Um, carbon forks we have seat packs that are about 17 liters we have two fork packs we have frame bags and we have a handlebar bag aero bars an absolute essential um we have the biggest rear cassettes you could possibly <laughs> imagine to give us the range like when you are on the flat and you go into the you go into that high gear on that cassette it feels like you're 
you've, there's no resistance whatsoever. It's, it's, it feels like your legs are just floppy. But when you're going up 18% gradient, oh, you need every last, you need every last gear. Like the cassettes are like plates. They are monumentally big. A lot of bike purists would hate me saying this. And my own brother, who's a real kind of purist and for speed and he's mad into the tour, would hate me for saying it, but I never go back to road from gravel. Right. Well, it's the new thing, isn't it? You got to have a gravel bike. It's the uh, it's the, the current N plus one, isn't it? Is it's a gravel just, bike? They're just so much fun, and they can do everything. And you can go anywhere on them, and you can go down the smallest, crappiest roads to bring you to the most amazing coastlines, and um, and just comfort wise as well. Deck, they're so much more comfortable. Right. How, how's um, the head, by the way? You you've got company. I mean, how what's the experience like? Oh, it's amazing. Like it's, it's the most incredible experience. Like we don't, we, it's funny. We don't speak to each other a lot on the bike. Like we're on the bike for six or eight hours a day. We actually don't talk to each other a huge amount because we're living in each other's pockets. Like if you could see the room I'm in now, I'm in a tiny little hostel in a basement in a, in Vienna. And I'd say it's about, I don't know, 10 square meters and there's three bunk beds and we're all cramped in on top of each other. Um, but the head is quite good for the most part. Um, it's very hard for the head to get too bad going across Europe when every 10, 15 kilometers you're going through these cool little towns and villages in the middle of Slovenia or Austria or, or northern Italy that no one ever goes through and that no Irish person ever really has a reason to go through. And then you're meeting these people completely randomly who give you such a lift just by taking an interesting like we were stopped in this tiny little town in Slovenia um, and we were looking for breakfast one morning because there was nothing out there and we found this tiny little tuck shop and we were sitting outside sitting outside just eating a yogurt and this sort of yogurty um, milkshake type drink and a piece of bread and little bread rolls because that was all we could get and we were sitting there middle of nowhere and this guy comes out of a house perfect English starts talking to us um, and started giving us tips on where to go and like we didn't think there was anyone around and it's it's little in- interactions like that that give you such a lift and it's really it's the type of it's been the type of four or five weeks so far where it's really kind of restored your faith in humanity type thing. And I know that sounds real cheesy and cliche, but it does like when you're doing something like this and you have no choice, but to rely on people to fill your water bottle for you or to give you directions or to let you set up your tent somewhere or to let you bring your bike into their guest house and, or let, or get someone to let you use their hose to clean your bike or to go into a bike shop with Niall, a bike mechanic and say to them, can we use your workshop for an hour to fix up our bikes? And people are just overwhelmingly kind um, and they won't take anything for the help they're giving us. Um, so with all that going on, it's very hard to go to too dark a place mentally because there's just so many uplifting moments every day. Now, if yeah. we were crossing the US and we were going through Kansas and um, big barren stretches of long straight road into a headwind, I'd say the brain might go to a bit darker of a place. But in Europe, that's not the case. Doing these kind of novel challenges and, and pushing your own limits just because you want to see what you, how good you can be yourself rather than seeing if you're better than anyone else. Just seeing what you purely are capable of on an individual level. I love the idea of that. Um, and it's not even that I'm always trying to think of the next, the next big plan um, because I feel like I have to it's more so just that I genuinely like doing this stuff. I, like I, I, like I, I, there's no hardship in this for me. 
like getting up tomorrow morning, we're probably going to be up at six and we've 160 K to do. And I'm going to eat breakfast on the side of a road and God only knows what I'm going to find for lunch. And I'm going to get into set up some camp in some small random town in Hungary and eat God knows what for dinner and get up at six o'clock the next morning and do it again and pack up my tent. There's no hardship in it for me. I genuinely like it. So I suppose in that sense, I wouldn't, I'd be very hesitant to kind of portray myself as this sort of kind of mentality monster that I'm always thinking the next big thing. What can I do to push the limits here? I, I kind of just like doing it. Yeah. What, what does cycling mean to you? What, what it is, what has it done for you? Well, it's funny because it probably, like, I won't sit down and watch the tour of the Giro or the Vuelta. I have no interest in it. Um, whereas my eldest brother does. And I suppose, so it's very much kind of just me and the bike that where my interest and my passion lies, just being able to wander. I think it's so cool that you can push yourself across the continent on a bicycle. Um, and I suppose for me, it's very much just freedom and headspace um, and just it's one of the few things that makes me very present. Um, I'm quite a, I'm quite a deep thinker, I suppose, in many ways. And it's one of the only ways where I just get kind of clarity of thought and often no thoughts whatsoever, which is even more uh, brilliant if I can get that. And that's just kind of what the, I don't know how it does it, but it's just something about the bike. I don't know whether it's the pace you move at on a bike or that you're able to take in your surroundings at a perfect, at a perfect speed or, just the notion that you can go such long distances with just your legs to parry. There's something about that that just kind of gets some sort of a passion going in me. Um, but yet at the same time, it doesn't make complete sense to me because I've absolutely no interest in cycle racing or watching any of the big tours or anything like that. So I don't really know. I, I don't know much about bikes. Like Niall laughs at me because I do more cycling than the other lads. Um, and Niall laughs at me. I'm clueless about bikes. <laughs> I, I have no, I have no idea like I went in, we were, we went in to pack up our bikes before we left um, in a place called 360 Cycles down in Clontarf after an amazing bike shop. Um, and I, I had a new chain and I just gave it to the mechanic. I was like, oh, will you throw this on for me? And it was, it was just SRAM. And he looked at it and he was like, SRAM, really? And I was like, what? He was like, you can't put SRAM on that GRX, uh, on that, <laughs> on that GRX, uh, whatever you call it the the uh so you don't have another word for it the derailleur and the cassettes and everything the, set, the, uh, yeah. the group set yeah he was like you can't put shram on that to your ex group set he was like what are you doing that's a sin i was like what are you on about it's just a chain put it on like i've no <laughs> I, i'm clue I'm, cl I'm clueless about it which is ironic for someone who does such mad cycling so uh yeah, you have a healthier attitude to it because it's about the adventure like you say it's about rather than the uh the paraphernalia and the, the clutter and the, the nonsense associated with it yeah uh now i did mention at the beginning of this uh of this podcast just that you're doing this for Bodywise and uh, Pieta House. Tell us a little bit about your um, chosen charities. Yeah, so I suppose, um, as we discussed, I suppose mentally I would have struggled a lot with my mood, I suppose, after the pacemaker. And I suppose Pieta House offer an awful lot of services and to kind of people who are going through difficulty. And I know at times organisations like Pieta can get a lot of flack but the reality is in this country, if it wasn't for certain organizations like PH and Bodywise who do a lot of work that the health service doesn't pick up the slack for, they cover, they paper over a lot of holes, um, which is why I'm always hesitant to be too critical of them because they're giving offering services that our health service should really be providing and they're plugging holes that they shouldn't have to plug. 
And then Bodywise are just an incredible organization. They're the National Eating Disorders Association of Ireland. And the, they are the first port of call for so many families who have loved ones struggling with eating disorders. Um, and they're only a small organization, only about eight or nine staff. But they are the primary support for people and their families. And they do incredible work. And they've done been incredibly supportive of me. And they're so many valuable resources and information evenings. And they what they do is the absolute def they are doing the absolute utmost they can for eating disorder um uh services in this country and yet they can only they can only do so much they're not massive um but they are literally doing all they can and they just i've seen the help they've given so many people that i've met over the summer and i just think they're an incredible organization and they do so much work that they shouldn't have to do and um, that really our health service should be providing but that's a that's a that's a story for another day but yeah two incredible charities that we're happy to be trying to help out in some way yeah no i mean a uh, great work and fantastic i think that you're highlighting this this issue that has been not uh, hasn't been getting the publicity it probably needed to get uh, in recent times uh, how does someone contribute if they would like to make a donation um, very simply, um, if you just Google Ackle to Athens, we actually pop up first um, because it's so uh, random. So yeah, Google Ackle to Athens and our fundraising page will pop up at the top um, and you'll find us. Well, fair play and uh, best of luck at that. I probably should say as well that you raised over €20,000 before you turned a single pedal stroke, which was uh, no mean feat and uh, I think a sign of just how inspiring that your your challenges and the way that you faced them over the last 10 years have uh, have indeed been for, for so many people. So thanks very much indeed to our uh, guest today, Cormac Ryan. If you've enjoyed this podcast, uh, please make sure to dis- uh, subscribe so you don't miss an episode and to find out the latest news, opinions and reports from the wide and wonderful world of cycling, check out welovecycling.ie. We Love Cycling, powered by Skoda. 